In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Being an exiled writer is not as it used to be before. Like, you know, during, for example, Nabokov time or other Russian writers who will flee out of uh, the Soviet Union and come here to the United States. And some of them, like Nabokov or Melanchondera in France, they would choose to leave uh, their language and to adopt a new language and writing it. They would choose to burn their ships and, and to forget about the past. But now in our lifetime, it's not like that. You are not in exile because you're still able to know what is happening in your motherland through the internet and through the news. And wallet becomes so con- connected that everything affects everything. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. I've been living in Las Vegas for the first part of this year as part of a fellowship with the Black Mountain Institute. And one of the highlights of this time has been getting to know, as a colleague and a neighbor, the writer Ahmed Naji. I call him a writer because he certainly is a writer, but Ahmed is a multi-hyphenate sort of artist. He's been a journalist, he's been a marketer, he's worked in film. 
and he became internationally known as a writer of novels when a novel that he wrote called Using Life, which is an experimental dystopian novel about Cairo, got him arrested on charges of, quote, violating public modesty in Egypt, where he is from. Apparently, someone had experienced a sudden drop in blood pressure after reading a sex scene in the novel. And Ahmed became improbably the first writer in modern Egyptian history to go to prison for a book he wrote. In prison, he received an outpouring of support from the international literary community. And once he was released, he came to the United States through a Freedom to Write fellowship through PEN America. After arriving in the United States, he and his wife, Yasmin, came to Las Vegas, where they've been living since 2019 and where I met them. Ahmed agreed to come on the podcast to talk about how the experience of imprisonment and then living in exile, particularly in exile in America, changed his feelings about writing and about his own identity. It's a fascinating conversation. This episode is presented in partnership with the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas. Our gratitude to them. Here's Ahmed Naji. I have been waiting your questions because I know how you will usually start the conversation. And uh, I've been thinking about this podcast and about uh, the interview for the last weeks because what I notice from other episodes that usually you ask a writer about like a big event or, or a big thing that is played a turn point in their life. And uh, I keep thinking, what was the turn point in my life? And I mm. found there is a lot of turn points. Uh, the reality is I, I live in Egypt. I lived in Egypt most of my life. And the last 10 or 12 years was full of turning points, starting from um, the revolution, married and divorced twice, um, changing jobs, changing places, cities, uh, going to the jail. And this looks like the whole 10 years was was so intense and full of turning point. And finally, the real turning point in my life is when I moved to Vegas two years ago. It just, I noticed like in your, in your podcasts, how like writer, when they are talking, they, they describe or depict this image of the life as it was like, stable or subtle and suddenly the event come and it could be simple things like like falling in love or being hit in a protest but in my case i feel it's it's the opposite it's my life was full of change that i become adopted for this change i become adopted for this turning over and over which returning me us back to your question about what happened in the prison, because before entering the prison, basically in in Cairo in Egypt, you live you live day by day. So <clears throat> I wasn't seeing myself as a writer, as as a full dedicated writer to literature writer. I thought of myself uh, sometimes journalist, documentary filmmaker. Uh, I worked in, in, in movie industry and production house. and But all that time I was writing. I was writing uh, secretly, uh, more to entertain myself. And it happened that when I finish what I am writing, I will share it with a close friends. And they were the one who thought, well, this is great. You should publish it. 
this was the case that happened in in all of my books before. But when I ended up at the prison because of my novel, uh, now you are in the prison and you start to 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 rethink in your life and your choice. And you doubt what you are doing. Like you start to ask yourself, is it worth it? I mean, writing, is it worth it to be here in, in, in the prison for a year or, or more? Um, and it took me like a long journey to a long journey uh, inside the prison to become with this conclusion, well, it looks like I'm a writer and I have to deal with writing in a serious way. But then I went out of the prison and two years after I fled Egypt and I arrived here. And uh, again, I'm facing with the same questions. Is it worth it? Do really I am a writer? I'm really a writer. Do I continue as a writer? What does it mean? to be a writer here in the United States? And what does it mean to be a writer in exile? So I'm facing with this, with all these questions, uh, which I think will be like my, my turning point. There's a story you relate in the essay for the believer about the rhinoceros as as an impo- as a person you knew in prison who was sort of instrumental. And I'm wondering if that was, your encounter with him was an important part of that? Um, thinking or or if the moment of saying what is what is writing is it worth it should I really engage with it came elsewhere in prison yeah so so for for me in the prison I I was in the prison because of my writing I always thought like I will enter the prison at a time of my life this is like uh, this is this is usually uh your life will be in Egypt. Like you, you can't predict, but for sure you will pass by the prison. And, uh, but I didn't thought ever that I will be in the prison because of my literature writing. I thought it would be because of my political activist, activist for, for my journalist work. But suddenly I was there for my novel. And, uh, I, before that, I have been looking to myself, to my literature writing, to my fiction writing, as it's, I'm writing and I'm doing this work that for sure will not win any literature prize. Okay. And for sure will, will, will not be published by big publishing houses. So I always deal, deal with it as kind of, of, um, revolutionary artist practice. Like I know I experiment a lot. I'm writing a hard book. Uh, it's not easy to read. I don't want a book to be easy to read back then at that time, at least to, e- to be easy to read, but like to be evocative and to push people to ask a question and rethink in, in, in their life and their choice. Uh, and I know by doing this, this I can depend on this as a, a, a source of income. So that's why I had to do other stuff. So that's why I had to give more time of my life to other stuff, to other work that I really didn't enjoy that much. I really didn't think that it has any useful impact. I worked for 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 long time, and I made a lot of money out of working at advertising and marketing. And uh, I think it's just like bullshit jobs, 
as David, <laughs> it's bullshit, kind of bullshit jobs. Um, but I have to do it to gain to gain money to 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 have a bread or at the table. And suddenly you are in the prison, and you are quite. Sh- I was also when I entered the prison, I was like thirty, going to be thirty, thirty one, and you know, like always, people saying and 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 thirty as a turning point in the life, like oh, I'm thirty now, so like. I only have what, like another 30 years in life or 35 years in life. Uh, so what, what what I'm going to do in those 30 years? Uh, so I was thinking and facing with all these questions in the prison. And I was thinking, well, now you are a writer. Everyone is dealing with you as a writer. It's even when you are in the prison, it's right other writers who show it the most solidarity with you. Uh, not the people who are working on advertising. Of course, like those people that work on advertising, they, they, they disappeared and marketing, they disappeared. <laughs> Not just journalists, but like other writers, uh, fellows and brothers from Egypt and from Arab world and from all over the world, even from here in the United States. Like I, I will receive messages through Ben America of other writers, including Zadie Smith, GQ Rowling, many names who like will send the solidarity and support and all this make me think well it looks that other people also seeing me as a writer and i'm here as a writer so maybe it's worth it it's worth it to give it more time uh to focus more in 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 your writing and to sacrifice other uh stuff including uh, including more money, like like of course, if you dedicated your life or so to your to your life as a, an advertising agency or a production or a producer, you will gain more money than working as a writer who have more questions uh, uh, than answer. It was also the story of the resources that showed me other faces of literature. Uh, as as I wrote it on on my book, like written evidence, we had this guy in the prison who was like totally totally disaster. He was like ha- he has like a stone heart in his mm-hmm. chest, and um, he was in the prison with his father. Like he bought, like he was the reason his father, who was like 75, 78 years old man in the prison, and I never saw this guy showing any emotional or any emotion or sympathy towards anything, even his father. But one day I woke up at night, I went to the bathroom and I found him crying. It it was 2 a.m. and uh, he was just like sitting there at the bathroom crying. And when I asked him why he's crying, is there something wrong? He just mentioned and asked me if I read a novel called Fi Qalbi Unsa Abreya in, in My Heart, a Hebrew girl. A very kitsch, uh, silly, romantic novel for teenagers. And um, he was reading it and he then he told me that it's so good that he's crying while reading it. So he left the book on his bed and he come here because whenever he will look at the book cover, he will remember sentence from the book and he will cry. <laughs> and, 
and this make me stop a little bit. I like, I, it took me days and nights thinking about it. I started saying, what is hidden in, in literature? What is, what is hidden power in writing? How come a guy like this guy who just literally like doesn't believe in, in anything except money? The government was accusing him of stealing $400 million. He was just saying uh, that he just got like $200 million. Um, really, just like don't care about anything. But suddenly he's reading this novel and he's crying. He's walking around in the next two or three days. He's walking around the cell and trying to convince everyone to read the novel. Like I remember him, he will come and and like I will tell him I will read. I, I I no, it's not my style. I don't want to read it. And he will open it and insist in reading like lines from it to me. So he was <laughs> like totally crazy. Like you know when you, you you fall in love with book and you just like keep talking about it forever. Um. So so it was this accident that made me think and about like what is the hidden power in the literature, and maybe uh, this power deserve to give it uh, the rest of my life in a quest for uh, for finding it and try to empower myself and using it and it's a beauty, it's a beauty in in contacting with people, in building communication and bridges with people to be able to uh, evoke and plant a feeling and ideas uh, in, in other people's minds. I had I had this experience a lot, but I thought I had this because I am CC, I'm artist. But suddenly in the prison, I was seeing like other powerful masculine criminal men uh, who, who who cry because of reading book so i thought wow so so books are not only for like intellectual sophisticated sensitive people but me myself i cry a lot i cry while reading i just yesterday was finishing this amazing novel called the gangster that we are all looking for uh, mm. by American Vietnamese uh, writer uh, called uh, I'm sh- for sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong Lee Tima Tiag mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong but just I was reading this novel for the last four days and I cried twice while while reading it mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I, I I I had this experience before like with books and with other kind of art but I thought just me because like I'm 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 a sensitive and a sissy guy How did your how did your relationship with uh with writing and with this feeling of a calling to engage literature for its power to do this for people. How did it change when you moved from from Egypt to the United States and as by your own description, out of a period of your life that was very chaotic and full of change and into a period that was less so? I still trying to, to, to understand and notice this um, changing. Uh, well, as, 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 as I was saying, like life in, in Egypt is happening so fast 
and it's hard to predict anything. Um, you always feel that you are you are running, and then you come here and you feel that the rhythm is slow a little bit, but the anxiety is more. Uh, mm. There is there is this tense or anxiety that you feel it around around you, like I always say, like how Egypt is a poor country and people there are 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 poor, but the problem here is that you feel it and you got it after whiles. It's not about that there is poor here, but it's about everyone is in debts. Everyone is on credit card and paying their education loans, their their health insurance loans, um, and there is no like social nets. Like you know, if if you lose your job, you will lose everyone. And um, this kind of anxiety is is new for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this society rhythm. Emotionally, reason at the, uh, at least is 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 new with me, and um, I'm trying to adapt to this new reason. As a writer, I'm facing with a lot of questions. I'm facing that uh, all my life I've been writing in Arabic. My English uh, is not that good. It's my second language. And uh, I'm here now in the United States, and and it's been two or three years, and it looks like I'm going to continue living here. Uh, no signs that we could go back any soon to to Egypt. So that's mean I'm a writer living in America, and who know maybe the Homeland Security will approve my green card. Maybe I'll become American one day also. So you are facing with all these identity questions about what does it mean to, to, to continue writing in Arabic in a country that most of people are speaking English or Spanish? Mm-hmm. Uh, should I continue writing in Arabic or should I focus in developing my, my English and, and try writing English? Uh, so now, as a writer, you face with questions. First, question about the language, what language you should continue using. And uh, and second, you have question about understanding your position in, in, in the new society uh, and adapting to it. I started to understand uh, uh, that when I moved here, when I moved here, I... And I remember my life in Egypt. I started suddenly to understand that I was privileged in Egypt. Like like in, in my society in, in Egypt, like number one, you had the military and the security officer guys. And then you have judges and religious people like Al-Azhar or the church. And then you have people like me who are like with fair skin, Muslims and male. And men, okay, mm-hmm. and I never thought of that while I was in Egypt. Like while in Egypt, I thought like we are all suffering, but suddenly after moving here, uh, and here uh, I become uh, a brown writer and an exile and immigrants, 
And maybe in a couple of months, maybe I could be like even a legal immigrant. I don't know. So I suddenly moved from being like number three in the hierarchy of classes to be in the bottom of the leader of the hierarchy of society classes. So <laughs> there is a process of adapting this uh, position that you are in and trying to understand it. And that's why like, I'm working on this project now that called 33 and, uh, in Eden or in Paradise. It's a way to try to understand uh, the, the new society and the new countries that I am in and to understand my position as a writer uh, and, 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 and what I'm trying to do or to figure out what I want to do. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about that project, mm -hmm. um, the 33 project, but will you tell me about it again <laughs> so that people listening can, can know more about it? Yeah, thank. So it's a book, um, the title that I chose called 33 and in broad eyes or in Eden or in Eden. Listener could tell, uh, tell me like, what is the best? And basically the idea, um, it came from Islamic mythology. In Islamic mythology, when you enter paradise, you are 33 years old. That means if you died when you are 16 and you went to heaven, you will be 33 years old. If you died while you are uh, 75 and you went to heaven, you will be 33. And this because uh, the old Arabs, they thought 33 is the perfect age and the perf when you have like the perfect body and the perfect mind. Very weird. I like if I want to realize I don't want my 33 years old. And uh, but on the other hand, I arrived in United States in August uh, 2018. This was just like one month uh, before turning 33 years old. And in my 33 uh, birthday, um, my daughter uh, was born, Sina, uh, and she was born uh, in the United States, so she was American. And suddenly, like you have all these elements, you are a new country, you are, you are becoming 33, they are telling to you it's a perfect body. And uh, you are in a new country. You have you are a father. You are a father also. So the book is trying to look into all of these uh, elements and subject through looking to and analyzing and studying like uh, immigrants policy and healthcare policy, United States, and comparing it to to. To my personal experience, so the book is is going around like main five or six themes. First one is about my color, my name. It's about like discovering colors when moving to United States. Uh, I came up from a culture that really uh, there is racism everywhere. There is racism in Egypt, but I would say like racism in Egypt is more depending on, on religion and uh, social class. Uh, here it's more on race and, uh, and ethnic and, and skin color. So you suddenly arrive here and you discover 
your new color. Like I grow up and everyone's describing my skin, which is fair skin, as a white like you know but mm-hmm. you arrive here and you will make interview or get invited to event and they will introduce you as a brown writer a word that i never heard before moving here uh, so i'm trying to understand these things about like color and what it have to to do with me and also looking to this funny uh, dilemma and introduction that's when when my daughter got born and they brought to us like the official paper to write her name and their details, I discover they asking you a lot of questions about like the girl race, the mother race, the father race, and mm. uh, and and it was my first time to interact with the American race system and I couldn't understand what I supposed to do. So I asked my wife, who's a lawyer and she lived here longer than me, and she was like white. We are all white. And then she explained to me that according to the American law, um, uh, all Arab are whites also. So the main theme is looking into this color and this dilemma of, of Arab and white and Middle Eastern and white people and, and skin color. The second theme is about um, um, health care for babies. Um I have a daughter who's American and I have another son who's living in Egypt who's Egyptian and uh, the difference between how he grew up and how she growing up depending on like how the health care system is dealing with babies here you start to do research and you discover that after the World War America invested a lot and still invest in manufacture and and uh, raise the bar of uh, the growing standards for babies uh, comparing to other world so i'm looking into this and i'm looking i'm looking into like like they want they want the i'm sorry to interrupt they want you mean they're like um trying to increase the target size and weight of babies yes 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 it's like <laughs> a funny a funny story about that um my daughter was born in D.C. and we were there. So every time we would go to the doctor and here in America, when you go to the doctor, they do a very weird things. After you finish, they give you all this paper and it, it include like a lot of charts and uh, and infograph. And it will show you like your your kid grows supposed to be like that. And they will give you like the charts and Every time when we were DC, our daughter were like at the line or below the line. Oh, like the per- growth percentile? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like her weight and her tall. So of course, like that, this make uh, that this made us like feel so bad. And and my wife was like, "I'm a bad mother. She doesn't eat. She doesn't grow." And then we move here in a way in Vegas, and um, suddenly we meet with this. Uh, we now have this amazing pediatrician, amazing doctor, who's like American, but he's from Philippine uh, origins. Mm-hmm. And when we visited him, we asked him about the shards, and he was like, "No, no, no, don't care about this. It's like uh, for American things. Like it's not like us. Our our babies and our bodies <laughs> is fine. It's American things." <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so that's I think that was that was two. The first, that was the, the, the second, two of, but uh-huh. yeah, it's connected also to the idea uh, I'm focusing on on also in male body, not female body, because there is a lot of things that wrote about female body, I think. And because I find myself as a male, having a male body. And uh, so I'm looking into like the image or the perfection of um, of the male body. What is the perfect male body? Um, and so I'm looking also in, in, in going to the gym and the gym culture here in the United States comparing to gym culture in, in Egypt. So this is like the other teams that I'm working on. Uh, one last teams also is about um, growing old as a male. Uh, like what happened to your body as a male when you grow up, when 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 you farewell and say goodbye to the youth and how you deal with, with your body it's changing and how masculinity, how frugal masculinity got affected by by getting old. Um, the other theme also that I'm working on is about burying body. Um, so getting rid of bodies and burying your bod- burying bodies is essential in, in old culture. But in Egypt, we only have one way. It's like you bought it onto the ground and the ground. But you come here in United States and um, you go like, like I was getting my driver license. And then they will ask you if you want to be an origin, organ donors. And uh, I remember like I froze in, in, in front of this question. And then I asked the cleric, can I think a lot more, I need more time to think in this question. And, <laughs> and and he looked at me as I'm crazy. He was like, no, you have to sign the paper now to get your driver license. Uh, but yeah, you have a lot of options here uh, to, to how to get rid of your body. So, so the whole book is about, again, it's about like l- discovering my, my new position in the United States through looking to my body and how the American uh, immigrants and legal system is dealing with this body. I'm looking also in like how the Homeland Security and the immigrants law is dealing with bodies. Like, you know, for example, there is a list of disease that um, if you had it before, you will not be eligible to have green card or or to get uh, to live in America. And uh, this list of of uh, virus and disease, uh, including a lot of diseases that some of it, like it's, it's easy to cure now, you know, um, and it keep it changing. Like I remember I was just reading and I discovered that if you happen to have or had HIV, you are not eligible for green card or, or to live here. But this was changing, was a change during uh, Obama era. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, there is other crazy diseases that you could basically cure it by by Tylenol or antibodies <laughs> or something like that. I think you were telling me tuberculosis is on that list. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I have to look that up.
It occurs to me while listening to you describe this new book, having just read Using Life, the, the novel that uh, for which you went to prison in Egypt, that a lot of your writing is about um, place and about an individual trying to navigate an encounter with a strange and sometimes hostile place. So much of Using Life is about Cairo and is about, um, you know, the narrator... Uh, and the narrator's body as as a desiring thing, as an individual, as you know, uh, as a as a corporeal thing trying to navigate Cairo. And now you're describing this new book, and it is a lot about your body trying to navigate and self-define here. Thank you for highlighting this. Uh, I, I really didn't notice this before. Uh, just just now, while, while you were asking me these questions, I was thinking in what you're saying and what I'm doing. And I'm think, I think like choosing writing about my body and bodies now, maybe because I am disoriented about my place now. I don't know mm-hmm. what is my place now. Um, I have been living in Las Vegas for the last two years. And this is like a long time in my life. Like even when I was in Egypt, I was moving from city to other city, from neighborhood to neighborhood. Uh, but living in downtown Las Vegas, this is like the longest time that I have lived in one place since I was like 18 or 19 years old. And I just recently, after I got the driver license and now I have a car, I just recently started, sometimes I will drive the car without any aim, just driving around the city, uh, trying to understand it. And uh, just lately, I was working on a small text in, in my journal, and I found for the first time, like I started to writing a little bit about Las Vegas uh, as a city. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, so maybe like writing and moving about writing about body, it's also like about creating uh, or using the body as a place because I lost the city now. I lost Cairo. If I'm going to write about Cairo, uh, I will be writing about cities that doesn't exist anymore. It's only exist in my mind and in, in, in my memory. I'm adapting. I'm 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 adapting, and uh, I look I look backward, and uh, I can't see any ships. Maybe the ships that that bring me in here left already. So I only have what I have. I, I what I have here, Las Vegas, and. Um, and there is a lot of similarity. I remember I was reading a novel by the American, the African American writer Chris Sabana, and he has his, his novel called uh, "The Secret Las Vegas." And uh, in this novel, he's describing Las Vegas as an African city because it's surrounded by desert, uh, the grandiose plashly of the facade of the city doesn't reflect or showing. Uh, how much it's 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 miserable and full of poor and homeless at the same time, mm. and and uh, and step by step, I I found my rhythm 
at this city, especially Las Vegas. I think if if we continue living in DC or any other cities, especially in East Coast, uh, my life would be so much blue and desperate. But mm. since we moved in Las Vegas, uh, it's less and less sad, and 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 it's an open city really. I was lucky first before because like I'm here as a fellow. Um, uh, at BMI, Black Mountain Institute, and my fellowship and people there, just amazing, amazing, helpful people. I'm surrounding by this lovely, uh, uh, talented community of young writers and teachers and in, in, in at Creative College who become my friends. So... It was easy to build a community here and to have friends, friends that you that that you share the same interest towards like books and literature and the art. And this is very important because I was here alone. I arrived in this city and we didn't know anyone, and uh, we were suffering and still suffering from post-trauma disorder, PTSD, but suddenly to be easy, to be in, in a city where it's easy to build a community and the friends, it helped a lot. It helped a lot to under a lot of things uh, about what's happening around me, uh, to educate myself and to find like the right people to exchange your feeling and your ideas with them. Uh, the city also, and I think anyone visited Dubai or any Gulf state knows that, but like Las Vegas and how it design and architecture is the same as uh, if you visited Dubai or any Gulf city. And it's the same as if you visited many new city in Middle East. I was surprised by that. I remember the first time we arrived here, me and my wife, we were shocked. We were like, wow, it's like Saudi Arabia. Because, <laughs> because it's in, in the middle of the desert and the house, the city is designed, the street is lined. It's the same. Of course, I discovered after that in Skistis, after the oil and gas boom in Middle East, that changing the lives there, people, American investors, especially from West Coast, they adopted the style of building cities in West Coast, like, like Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and uh, they moved it to, to, to Middle East and Gulf countries. Mm. Uh, so now, and I grew up when I was a child, we lived in Kuwait. So now when I'm moving in, in when we move to Vegas, um, it's like being in a new city, but this new city has a connection with your memory. That's beautiful. What a, <laughs> what a strange coincidence of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the city, and, and of course now, the, the, and, and the funny thing is, of course, now that Golf, golf money is the money that is supporting Las Vegas. Like, like last year, for example, during the pandemic, the city didn't have access to, uh, to, to coronavirus test kit. And the federal government during Trump administration didn't send them enough testing kit. So it was MGM, uh, CEO, uh, like, you know, MGM, the resort, who mm -hmm. called MBZ, the ruler of Emirat, and they sent uh, uh, 200,000 
test kit especially dedicated for Las Vegas. And you discovered <laughs> like know that. Yeah, it happened it happened last summer and it was a big thing, like the mayor of Las Vegas, they went out and they sank it, the Emirati rulers and MBZ and so on. But then like I started to do like a, a, a small research and I discovered that in two thousand eight when um when the market fell down and the economic crisis happened, uh, Vegas was affected and the prices of land and and other casinos here went down. So it was Dubai and uh, Emirati money uh, that poured into the city and they already like own the convention centers and a lot of big projects here in the city. Uh so yeah, it's 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 a very interesting uh, circle, and it's also showing me that being an exiled writer is not as it used to be before. Like you know, during for example Nabokov time or other Russian writers who will flee out of uh, the Soviet Union and come here to the United States, and some of them like Nabokov or Melanchondera in France, they would choose to leave. Uh, their language and to adopt a new language and writing it. They will choose to burn their ships and and to forget about the past. But now in our lifetime, it's not like that. You are not in exile because you're still able to know what is happening in your motherland through the internet and through the news. And wallet becomes so con- connected that everything affects everything. I mean, mm-hmm. we just all been through what happened last year. It's just like a small market in a city in China affect all of us, all our life since last year. So also when, when you are thinking about exile writers as my position and looking into history of other writers, yeah, you learn a lot, there's similarity, but there is a unique thing in, in, in our moment, the moment you are living. We started by talking about your your decision to take to take yourself, you know, seriously as a writer to say I am a writer and this is what I'm going to do, um, and how that decision has had changed over time. And I'm I wanted to come back to that before we end our conversation. I think by asking um, in this period of disorientation as you described and and of adjustment what are your what are your hopes for who you are and will be as a writer and for what your writing might do now mm-hmm. literally i don't know i don't have an answer <laughs> for these questions like if you asking me this question two years i will be sure like i will give you three pages answering but now my hope is first to, to understand my new position. Uh, uh, and I hope to, to this will happen through my journey in writing this book, 33 years and in paradise. Uh, and then I will be able to, to, to think on my next step. I hope also to gain more conf- confidence in my English. Uh, I think I think I, I, I want to move in writing in, in English, but uh, I still have a long journey to do this. Um, I hope to have 
to have to find to find the key to open up uh, the English language for me. Uh, I hope one day I will be a, I will be confident enough to write fiction on it. Um, I hope I will be able one day to dream in English. I think if I started to dream in English, I'll be able to writing in it. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.